0: I'm sure you will all agree that the world, and indeed South Africa, is on a knife's edge. I don't believe I've ever witnessed such political and economic upheaval, both globally as well as locally. We have just seen the British electorate throw themselves out of the Euro. Crikey. Even the Greeks didn't manage that. We have just seen Donald Trump, that celebrity, part-time property tycoon, part-time businessman, part-time so-called political thug, get the Republican Party's nomination for the US presidency. We have witnessed an unprecedented rise in global terrorism. We have seen countries divided on religious, racial and political grounds. We have even seen Portugal win a Euro. I'll have to say Greece did it first. (laughs) Um, Here in South Africa we have seen some incredible events. The firing of our finance minister towards the end of last year. The constitutional court's ruling on the Nkandla scandal. The court's ruling on the NPA's decision to withdraw the corruption charges against President Zuma. The ICASA ruling on SABC's decision to ban publicity on all violent political events. We saw the Labour Courts ruling to reinstate the journalists that condemned this view. We saw South Africa narrowly avoid a downgrade. We have seen the capitulation of the RAND and the subsequent unexpected rally um, taking us to less than 14 to the dollar just on Friday. Six months ago, we were all scared about this place's future. Given what's going on around the globe, this seems like a pretty cool place to be right now. We have an election in two days' time. I don't think there has ever been such interest in its outcome. As I stand here before you today, I'm on pins and needles with the need to find answers to so many questions. Will the Federal Reserve hike interest rates in September? Will another EU country have a referendum on leaving the EU? When will the Saab next hike the repo rate? Will South Africa be downgraded to junk status in December? Will South, Africa's experience, will South Africa experience a technical recession? Here to give us all the answers to these questions and more is Peter Worthington. (laughs) Peter is a Canadian national who joined APSA in March of 2013 as a principal in charge of the South African Macroeconomic and Strategy Team, which comprises economics, FX strategy, fixed income strategy, credit strategy, as well as technical analysis. Peter took his bachelor's degree in economics at the University of British Columbia in 1987, He then moved to the UK to complete his master's degree at the London School of Economics, where he finished it in 1989, before joining the Bank of England where he spent some four years. He also worked as an economist covering emerging economies at both JP Morgan as well as Credit Suisse, with stints in both London and in Johannesburg, most recently running the EMEA team at Credit Suisse in London. Prior to returning to what he says is his second home in South Africa, Peter was berry farming and running a garden centre on a small island off the coast of western Canada seems like a far nicer place to be, given all that's going on at the moment. Please give, me, give Peter a warm welcome.
1: Well, I'm deeply flattered that Costa thinks that I have all the answers, which just goes to show he doesn't really understand how economists work. <laughs> Um, My presentation today, South Africa, ready, set, stall. Uh, There is a lot of bad news in the presentation but there's also some uh, green shoots of hope. I'll try and flag them because I always get accused of presenting a very depressing story and then people want to go out and drink heavily or do worse. So I'm hoping that I'll manage to keep you sober and here for long enough with some pieces of good news. And we're gonna have some uh, interactive Q&A parts of the presentation To answer the questions which Costa raised, I'm going to set a little bit of the context first. First, I'm going to talk about the impact of Brexit and our U.S. outlook. Uh, Then we'll go into a section dealing with the South African real economy. I also want to offer some comments on the elections in two days' time because I think they're the most important elections since uh, 1994, and they have some big implications depending on exactly how the votes uh, play out. And then finally, I'll offer a few comments on the macro backdrop to the savings industry. Costa asked me to talk about it, and I realized as I thought more about it that it was incredibly difficult, and I probably know far less about it than uh, anyone here in the room. But I want to bring out a few of the things that are emerging out of the national accounts data, kind of setting the macro backdrop for the savings industry. So, Brexit and the global economy. I think it's fair to say that everybody has been surprised by how muted the market reaction to the uh, surprising decision to leave the European Union uh, was, was much less severe than expected. We did have an impact in, in the sterling and in some currencies, but many of them bounced back despite the fact that the outlook is still terribly clouded with uncertainty and downside risk. And our view is, we've seen markets trade quite benignly, but actually we've also not seen the full horrors of the Brexit uh, effect really manifest themselves. And one of the reasons for this is because there are time lags to the effect of Brexit on the global economy with feedback loops running between the real economy and financial markets and also reverberating across borders. And this is going to take some time for it to fully play out. It's a complicated situation, but our view as a house, Barclays Africa, ABSA, is that Brexit is bad news and we haven't yet fully seen just how bad it is. Um, I think there are two big unknowns. Will the UK actually exit? Uh, But I think we've got a little bit more clarity on that since the selection of Theresa May as the UK Prime Minister. Even though she campaigned to stay within the European Union, she's been quite adamant that Brexit does mean exit, and she's appointed prominent Leave campaigners to key posts. It's suggesting that they're serious about leaving. Uh, In a way, it's kind of a pity because I'm pretty sure that if you held an election today or a referendum, the majority of the population would vote against leaving the European Union. Many of them seem to be voting for nationalistic reasons and not really realizing the consequences yet we've actually started to see some of the consequences with very steep declines both in firm sentiment and investment plans and also in consumer sentiment. Um, There's a bigger uncertainty even if we are 100% clear that they're going to leave however and that is what is the terms of the divorce going to look like. In some ways uh, political incentives would suggest that the EU should play hardball. They want to make it hurt to deter any other would-be leavers. On the other hand Uh, We've had some more moderate noises come out of uh, sensible leaders like Angela Merkel saying maybe we should not enter into some kind of a tit-for-tat ramping up of the uh, sort of uh, repercussions and making them worse than they actually have to be. But I think it is fair to say that perhaps the UK had a little bit of a rosy view on what Brexit would mean. Uh, The EU politicians have been pretty clear. You can't have You can't cherry pick the European Union. You cannot have access to the single market without having the four freedoms, one of which is freedom of movement of people, and that is actually the thing which motivated the Brexit vote in the first place, was immigration. Uh, We actually think that answers to these questions are not going to be clear for some time. Uh, The uh, negotiation process over the exit will take up to two years. Um, That's the specified time, but actually it's so complicated it could take longer than that. And we don't yet have a coordinated policy response coming out of uh, the euro area to deal with the Brexit um, consequences. Our view is that we're going to see more monetary ease from the central banks because that's what they can do. So we have a Bank of England uh, meeting later on this week. We expect them to cut interest rates and expand their quantitative easing program. We expect the same for the European Central Bank at their September meeting. And in the case of the U.S., uh, we continue to forecast a 25 basis point rate hike in September, with the U.S. making the judgment that the impact on Brexit, the impact of Brexit on them, is not going to be severe enough to derail their plan to gradually raise uh, interest rates. We'll have to watch the U.S. payrolls report in a couple of days' time for confirmation of that, though. We had a very strong June payrolls report. We're expecting a reasonable one in July. That could shift expectations back in favor of a rate hike in September, but it's by far from the market consensus view, so I'm interested to hear what everybody in the room will have to say about that. A couple of um, key uh, dates here. I mentioned the central bank meetings, but we've got some big risk events a little bit further on in the global economy as well. Uh, one that Costa cited 8th of November U.S. presidential elections. I can hardly believe it, uh, but Donald Trump is polling even with Hillary Clinton. And if we ever wanted a global political risk event where the outcome was highly uncertain, that would be one of them at the moment. But we also have some others a little bit closer to home. We have an Italian uh, referendum in October uh, that could see the exit of the Prime Minister if uh, the constitutional amendments are not approved. We also have general elections next year in the Netherlands and in France. And these are areas of concern because the Brexit vote probably gave some uh, uh, encouragement to people who, within the European Union who are anti-EU. Uh, that anti-EU, anti-internationalist, anti-immigration sentiment will only have been amplified by the horrible ISIS-inspired events which just seem to have erupted all over Europe. We've got a problem here that has no easy solution and is going to keep uh, things quite uncertain for some time. You can't see this, uh, but it could be distributed in the presentation. The basic point here is that the growth picture for the global economy is really poor. We now expect global growth to be less than 3% uh, this year. And we're not looking for a big pickup to come through in 2017. That's not a very conducive environment for economies like South Africa, uh, which depend very significantly on global growth for their own impetus. I think maybe before we move on to the um, South Africa part of the presentation, now might be a good idea to take the Q&A uh, questions, and I'm curious to see whether what I think is an environment of great uncertainty is also has a diversity of views amongst the, the audience here. So our...
2: Can I make the... Announcement from the back here so I can control the votes. Um, sorry, ladies and gentlemen. The keypads
1: in front of you are straightforward. They are numbered 1 through two zero, which is 10, um, or A, B, C, D, etc. Please place your vote once the voting is open and only when the voting is open. So Peter will tell you start voting now and you can start voting. When he tells me to close, I will close the vote and we'll see a response immediately. Um, You only have to key once, you don't have to click OK, and you can change your vote at any point.
0: All right? So Peter, over to you.
1: Great. Thanks. So my first question is, the one on which there's no certainty in the market but huge implications for the South African RAND and for risk appetite for uh, more risky assets uh, in the world economy, is the Federal Reserve going to hike in September or not? Um, A for yes and B for no. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Ah, I see, okay, we get the votes immediately. Small, reasonable majority say no. Okay, it's still 42%. That, that's actually more or less in line with market pricing. I think the market pricing at the moment is about 30% for a rate hike uh, in September. But watch the payrolls number that's out in a few days. If it's a strong number, you might expect a fairly sharp uh, shift in expectations in that regard. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Will another EU member country follow the UK's example and try to leave the EU? This is the scenario that gives EU leaders the horrors. Ooh. So, 61% of people expect EU leaders to have an absolutely horrible time over the next 12 months. Very interesting, okay. All right, we'll move on to the next question. Uh, if yes, will the countries attempt to leave the EU, either through a referendum or some kind of uh, legislative process, will it succeed? ha! Uh-huh. <laughs> the interesting thing about this, and one big difference between the UK versus other countries trying to leave the EU is that, of course, the UK was not part of the Eurozone. But the other countries where e- anti-EU sentiment is fair, running fairly high, Austria, uh, Netherlands, potentially um, France at the moment, They're all part of the Eurozone, so a decision to leave the EU would also be one to leave the Eurozone. If we think leaving the EU is complicated, try leaving a currency union. Hmm. That would be fairly messy. Uh, I think that's an understatement. Okay, we can go on to the next one. Ah, Very big dispersion of views there. A lot of people think France, Netherlands. I would think probably those are the two most likely as well. Okay, so again, a difference of views there. Let's go on to the next question. Now that we're moving domestic, and here is another area of massive uncertainty. Uh, when will the SARB next take the repo rate? I'll go through the South Africa macro outlook in a moment, but we obviously have... Um, I would say recently, a bit of a shift in views. We are in the middle of a hiking cycle, and yet for the last two MPC meetings, the SARB has stayed on hold. And in the last MPC meeting very recently, it was a unanimous vote on, of the committee not to hike interest rates. Um, what do we think? Are they going to move in September? Or Will it be next year? Or actually, is the next move going to be a cut at some point? November. Well, for what it's worth, uh, my view is is that the next move is going to be a hike and it will be in November. I'm interested to see that uh, nearly one out of five people expect the next move to be a cut because I'm a little bit of an outlier in terms of what the economists are thinking. There's a wide variety of views out there, but a lot of uh, credible economists now expect the SARB to uh, stay on hold. But I think in the last MPC, they were pretty clear that the bar to a cut is very high. They need to see inflation come back down within the target range stay there sustainably, and they're not talking just within the target range, they want to see it coming into the middle. Um, But again, a diversity of views out there, significant diversity. This one is the 64 million rand question. So on balance, people are somewhat optimistic. That's actually encouraging. Um, I'm afraid I side with the blue and I'll I'll explain why in a a little while. Thank you very much for participating and we'll move on to the rest of the presentation. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about is drought. Um, We don't really see it anymore. It seems to have receded into uh, people's memories but the impact of the drought remains. Um, It's over but its effects will linger. Uh, We're going to have a maize harvest which is about 25 percent down this year on where it was last year. Um, Next year should look pretty good. The the meteorologists are forecasting that El Niño will move to La Niña which is slightly warmer and slightly wetter weather in the key maize growing areas Uh, but the impact on agricultural value add will will continue for some time with many farmers having been uh, brought to the edge of um, um, solvency And so there's a lasting impact at work in terms of farm potential um, output, but also in terms of where our dams are sitting at the moment. Our dam levels, uh, despite the recent rains, have not really budged that much in recent weeks. We're sitting at about 52-53% capacity, but that's an average. It's a little bit misleading because in some places, like the Eastern Cape, and KwaZulu-Natal, many important dams are nearly empty. Uh, It's going to take a long time for them to recover and the impact of that will continue to drag. Uh, Last year, load shedding and electricity supply was a big story, but as we all know, we've not seen any load shedding now since uh, the third quarter of last year. And to some extent, this reflects good work by ESCOM. Their Tetris maintenance program has been quite successful in reducing what they call unplanned outages, which is essentially breakdowns, and that it's allowed more room for um, planned outages, in other words, uh, strategic maintenance, to improve the stability of the grid. So grid stability, such as it is, has improved, and that has allowed us to reduce the use of open cycle gas turbines uh, quite significantly. At one point we were running at a usage cost of about 2 billion rand a quarter. At the moment it's it's less than uh, sort of 25, uh, 50 million rand a quarter. So a very significant drop. But uh, there's another story as well, which is that actually it's just the economy which is super weak. There has been some improvement in grid stability, but the main story is the weakness of the mining and the manufacturing sector, particularly those parts of manufacturing which are incredibly energy intensive, metal smelting. Those parts of the economy have done relatively poorly, and the weakness of electricity demand stemming from those sources is one of the reasons why there is enough electricity to go around for the rest of us. Um, ESCOM are, at the moment, saying that uh, load shedding is a thing of the past. I think that that's... That could be true, but we have to see how the economy performs when electricity demand spikes again, because we are vulnerable to another Majuba-type incident. It could happen. Um, so I don't think we're necessarily out of the woods at this stage. And of course, behind all of this, we have a huge political battle uh, about to kick off in terms of the PR campaign to drive uh, a South African nuclear procurement. And where do renewables fit into all of this? Uh, but at the moment, I think we can feel comfortable. No electricity, load shutting. Um, So those were two supply-side constraints which were quite severe last year and which are starting to ease now, drought and electricity. A demand-side constraint which we can't ignore, uh, which you will all be well familiar with, is that our household sector is under an awful lot of pressure. Um, Hard to tell, actually, in some ways from the data. If you look at the chart there, this is real retail sales growth, the year-on-year calculation. We had very weak prints in March and April. We thought that the household sector was falling off a cliff, and then the May print was astonishingly strong. Um, Our contacts in the retail sector tell us that that wasn't really sustained into June, and I think it makes sense if we think about everything that households are experiencing. They are suffering rising unemployment. Um, Income growth has slowed, we've had 200 basis points of rate hikes in in the current cycle, and in the last budget, uh, although it was introduced quite sneakily, there was a net tax drain from households through personal income tax. And all of that is going to have some further um, uh, development in the upcoming budget next year. Taxes have to go up next year, and the consumer is probably the place where the taxes will go up, maybe through a VAT hike. Um, labor market weakness, we had a big jump in unemployment in um, Q1 and it didn't reverse in Q2. Uh, the chart on the right hand side shows that there has been some uh, recovery of uh, jobs since the depths of the 2008 global financial crisis. Uh, but not enough really to substantially improve our unemployment problem and of course the public sector which has been the, the employer of last resort for a long time now. We're bumping up against fiscal constraints. We can no longer afford to be using the public sector as the employer of last resort. So the employment picture going forward looks pretty dismal. And we're starting to see um, some adverse signs pop up in credit markets. The chart on the left is national credit regulator data. And it shows that we've had a nice declining trend. The blue bars represent the value of arrears on the book of consumer credit across all credit types. And it was on a more or less declining trend with a little bit of volatility until Q1 this year when all of a sudden arrears spiked. And what was very interesting about them, in contrast to previous um, periods, for the first time we're starting to see arrears rise on secured credit, arrears on mortgage bonds, vehicle finance, and the like. To me, that's a sign of consumer debt distress. It's not particularly surprising given 200 basis points of rate hikes in the current cycle, which has increased households' debt servicing costs, with banks becoming less willing to provide new credit. Uh, so we're kind of reaching a, a bit of a crunch point on that front. Uh, consumer confidence at multi-year lows. Uh, What I think is quite interesting if you look at the chart on the right, it's consumer confidence broken down into its three different uh, constituent components. Consumer sentiment about the economy in general, consumer sentiment about whether it's the right time to buy durables, and consumer sentiment about their own financial position. And interestingly, consumers on balance still remain relatively optimistic about their own financial position. Now you could take a positive interpretation of that and say they understand their uh, balance sheet best, they understand their income flows and expenditures the best, they know that they're okay even though they see all of this negative news about the economy. Maybe there's a little bit of strength there that we're not properly capturing uh, in our overall picture, but you could also have a, a different interpretation which is that everybody always thinks that it's the neighbor that's going to be fired until it actually happens to you. Um, But at the moment, consumers are still relatively optimistic about their own financial position, which will keep retail spending somewhat elevated, although, as I pointed out, we've, we've had a bit of a deceleration. But the minute that light blue line starts to go sharply negative, we could really see a crunch come through in household spending. Private sector business confidence also extremely weak. Uh, across a number of different sectors, whether it's motor vehicles, manufacturers, civil construction, the building industry, um, retail sector, all really quite weak. (coughs) We, at Barclays, we use the Bureau of Economic Research, and we compile a Purchasing Managers Index, which isn't really a a, a business confidence index, but it just does capture some pieces of sentiment, and there we've actually had a little bit of um, encouraging news, where for the last four months, Uh, We've seen the Barclays Purchasing Managers Index above the neutral level of 50. Firms telling us that actually business conditions are okay. Uh, In particular, many of them uh, say in the survey that they're finally um, experiencing the exchange rate as a competitive advantage. Uh, And it's enabling them to export more and also to compete more effectively with uh, imports. Now, this is extremely important. This is the currency maybe finally starting to do what it's supposed to do when it weakens to rebalance the economy away from imports and consumption towards investment and exports. Uh, But it's a very early stage uh, uh, green shoot. And we'll have to just see whether it plays out further into the hard data, into production data. Um, The story on the consumer price inflation outlook has improved relative to where we expected it to be a few months ago. Um, Much of this is due to the strength of the RAND, on the one hand, and also to the fact that oil prices uh, post-Brexit have come off, we were at one point up around $50 a barrel we're now down at around 44 at these levels just to put a number on it every $10 difference in the price of barrel of a crude oil is worth 0.5 percentage points on south africa's cpi so there's a pretty significant pass through uh, coming in there, and you can see the chart on the lower left hand uh, side just how much um, Rand oil prices have eased since June. It's one of the reasons why we've had a one nearly one rand per liter uh, petrol price cut with effect from today We um, are still expecting to see uh, a multi-quarter breach of the target However, and for, this is the reason why the SARB is not going to cut even though many of the things have started to look a little bit better we don't have the food price inflation that we had expected, um, although data on this is volatile. We had two good prints and then a, a very poor print. We're seeing very little evidence of pass-through from currency weakness uh, to the broader uh, inflation basket. There's a pass-through which is almost automatic to petrol prices, but broader than that, we're not seeing much. Um, but we still have CBI inflation likely to be in breach of target through to the middle of next year. And for that reason, the Reserve Bank is going to stay on the side of being quite hawkish, we believe. Um, turnaround in the PMI I mentioned. We're also seeing some positive signs of turnaround come through in the external accounts. We had the release of a trade balance number on uh, Friday. Uh, we had an extremely strong surplus in, in May. The trade balance number for Friday was the, was the trade uh, balance for June. Aside from May, it was the second strongest uh, number since 2010. So you can see the chart in the lower right-hand side, all of a sudden, our, our external balance, our trade performance uh, starts to look pretty good. And as a consequence of this, we've changed our current account deficit forecast. So for the second quarter, we now expect a current account deficit of actually less than 2% of GDP. That's quite different from the four and a half, five 5% of GDP we were posting before. And this is coming despite the fact that commodity prices remain weak. Now, we get a bit of a help, obviously, weaker oil prices, but net-net weak commodity prices is a negative for us because commodities are a larger share of our export basket than oil is of our import basket. But Brexit has been a little bit of a help. Gold prices have jumped in the wake of Brexit. But underlying all of the commodity trends, what we're also getting now, finally, in our trade balance is an improved balance in exports, of manufacturers relative to imports of manufacturers. So the chart on the lower left-hand corner of this slide just shows you the picture for the motor vehicle and components uh, trade. We previously always would accumulate by the end of the year a fairly large deficit. Now, however, we're tracking towards balance in that sector. And there are other areas of manufactured product, pulp and paper, plastics, etc., where we're going to see a similar improvement weak currency doing uh, what it needs to do for the rebalancing of the economy. But we have unfortunately a growing fiscal challenge. Um, We had a release of the budget data for June on uh, Friday and unfortunately what they're telling us is that revenues are under considerable pressure. The chart in the upper left here shows you one especially, VAT receipts. VAT receipts for the first quarter of the fiscal year that we're in at the moment were flat on the previous year. That's significant. They're the largest single source of tax receipt for National Treasury. Corporate income tax receipts are also under significant pressure. And if you actually look at expenditure growth versus revenue growth, for the first time in a while in the June print, uh, we actually had expenditure growth outpacing uh, revenue growth. Such that when we come to the medium-term budget policy statement in mid-October, Uh, Finance Minister Gordon is probably going to tell us that we're going to miss the deficit targets that were laid out at the time of the budget in February because of the weak growth's impact on revenues. And this matters a great deal for the credit rating agencies because we have seen a relentless upward revision to our debt trajectory every time we come to do a fiscal iteration. Treasury has been waiting for growth to recover to restore fiscal balance, reduce the deficits, and stabilize the growth of debt to GDP. We always project that it will stabilize in the outer years of the forecast horizon, and then we find that growth disappoints or something else happens, and it doesn't stabilize. And unfortunately, without corrective measures, fairly significant ones, that is likely to remain the case. So we're unlikely to see a stabilization of the debt ratio without some fairly significant corrective measures, and they could either be revenue increases or expenditure cuts. Uh, We are going to wait and see what Minister Gordon alludes to in the medium-term budget policy statement. He can't do much in the middle of this fiscal year to put us back on track. He can delay a few expenditures, but there's no legal mechanism for raising revenues in the middle of the year, but he can signal what's going to come in the upcoming budget. And one of the things that I think is absolutely essential for South Africa is we need a VAT hike. We need a VAT hike to ensure that we actually get back on the path of fiscal sustainability because at the moment we're dancing on some very slippery uh, debt dynamics and we could easily start to slide down that slope. In fact, I would argue that we probably already have started to slide down it a little bit and we need to make some firm efforts to clamber up out of that hole. We have a fairly bearish view on the currency, but I want to put it into context. We also have a very bearish view as a house on the impact of Brexit, and that is by and large manifesting in a fairly significant view on what we're expecting for Eurodollar. So our Euro dollar forecast is that we actually hit parity by the end of the year and by the end of Q2 2017, we're expecting euro-dollar to be down to 0.85. That has big implications for our dollar rand view. So at the moment, with that strong dollar view, we expect dollar rand to rise to about 17.50 by the end of the year. If you have a different view, and you are more sanguine on the dollar vis-a-vis the euro that we're not going to get down to parity or uh, down to 0.85, then you could arguably have a view where dollar rand is, uh, less, uh, doesn't rise quite so far or so fast. And indeed, that seems to be the consensus view, as you can see there from the uh, Reuters consensus survey shown by the, the gray bar. I think forecasting currencies is an incredibly difficult exercise at the best of times. Uh, I wouldn't get too hung up on any particular point forecast, but I I think if you hold to the view that Brexit is a significant event that hasn't been properly priced by markets, you have to think that the impact on dollar-rand is going to be one that sees it moves somewhat higher when the full Brexit horrors start to manifest. As for rate hikes, the market is pricing in 25 basis points over the next 15 months. With our more um, aggressive currency view, We actually see two more rate hikes. I was interested to see that the majority of respondents in the room agree that the SARB is going to move next in November. That's my view as well. I also think we're going to get a rate hike from the SARB in January just to deal with the end of year Brexit shocks, the impact of a downgrade, the potential impact, uh, heaven forbid, should the American electorate do an insane thing and elect Donald Trump as president. There are a lot of event risks out there for the rand. Uh, that the SAR may need to respond to and then of course uh, in a couple of days time we have some very interesting uh, political uh, events to happen here. So I think what's quite Surprising, if you believe the Ipsos ENCA polls, and there has been some um, uh, debate about whether they are reliable or not. We don't have a plethora of polls in South Africa to judge them by, but I will make this point about Ipsos and ENCA. They polled in the 94, in the sorry, in the 2014 national elections, and they got the results almost to a T. So. I'm prepared to give their poll some credence. And what they're showing is the DA leading the ANC in the three metro areas that they are polling. And in Nelson Mandela Bay and Swanee, Uh, The DA is quite substantially ahead of the uh, ANC, so much so that if we make some reasonable assumptions about undecided voters, such as they just decide not to go to the polls, or they do go to the polls but they vote in proportion to those who have declared their intentions, if you make reasonable assumptions, it's possible that in Nelson Mandela Bay and Swanee, the DA might even be within reach of forming a coalition government uh, without having to rely on the EFF. But in Joburg, that is unlikely to be the case. And it's not even clear uh, in Joburg that uh, the DA will uh, lead uh, the ANC. It could be that the ANC comes out as the largest party. At any rate, to the extent that these metro areas reflect a development that's taking place all over the country, we're in for an unprecedented era of coalition governments. And I think it offers uh, some risks and some opportunities these elections are taking place against the backdrop of really regrettable rising political violence and this makes it a very key test of South Africa's democracy. I'm really not at all worried that these elections will be rigged in any way. I think there are far too many checks and balances in the process for this to happen. One for example is that votes get counted at the polling stations and provisional announce provisional results are announced right then and there, it would be far too difficult for anybody to try and coordinate um, grand-scale rigging like that, and I I think we're going to get results that reflect the votes that are cast. Uh, The question is, do parties and does the electorate accept the votes, accept the results when the IEC comes to announce them? Uh, And then what happens in the subsequent two weeks as coalition discussions take place? I personally don't see any um, insuperable obstacles to coalitions between the DA and the EFF because at a local level they have identical interests, which is to provide some jobs for their people to show that they can actually um, get the ANC out of office at a local level and to establish some kind of track record of local government. Um, I was interested as well to see that the EFF said that they are open to doing coalition discussions with anybody other than the ANC. Uh, So I think we're going to have some interesting uh, local politics. And it's a pretty key um, electoral test. But after that, there's another electoral test that arises, which is that the succession battle um, for who is to come after President Zuma will erupt to the fore again. And we have a situation, I think, where... What I would describe as the patronage network and then the, the, technocratic, uh, net, uh, the technocratic network, they're actually fairly evenly balanced. It's kind of a Mexican standoff at the moment. And we're seeing that Mexican standoff play out uh, very viscerally in the case of South African Airways, with Finance Minister Gordon's inability so far to uh, deliver a new board uh, in the face of opposition, apparently, from the president. Let's watch what happens after the local government elections. Earlier on this year, there was a fair bit of talk that a really bad result for the ANC, and there's no doubt that the Ipsos polls would be a bad result for the ANC, that it would motivate the party to find a formula for President Zuma to step down early. Personally, I don't believe it. I think what we've seen uh, in recent months is that the President uh, and his allies have control enough that his position looks fairly secure, but I could be wrong in that regard. (coughs) Another potential risk after the elections is that uh, it's a bad result. Um, We go through to the end of the year and there's a rating downgrade, and that is an excuse for the president to reshuffle the cabinet in a way that sees Finance Minister Gordon uh, leave his post. I don't think it's necessarily likely, but it's a risk that we should watch for, uh, because it would probably mean quite significant uh, sell-off in our markets. People would understand what it means. So a lot is going to happen after the elections. Um, I'm very curious to see how they turn out. I think they're the most important since 94. And then finally, just a few comments on um, the macro context for uh, household savings behavior. Unfortunately, is not very helpful. We've had household savings, curiously, it's, it's hard to believe that it actually is running like this, but it, according to SARB's national accounts data, household savings rate has been negative since 2006. Uh, part of this reflects the fact that household disposable income growth has been under considerable pressure since then as well. We obviously had a bit of a dip come through in 08, 09 with the global financial crisis, but if you abstract from that the general trend Household disposable income growth has been one of deterioration, and if we 're expecting further tax hikes and maybe some further interest rate hikes to come through that 's going to remain a feature of the story as well and We have investment overall curbed by south africa 's low savings rate it 's really a very simple identity: your investment rate in a country is your domestic savings rate plus whatever savings you can import through a current <coughs> account deficit. There are risk appetite limits in the global economy to what size of a current account deficit that we're able to run and finance properly. If we want to see higher investment and higher growth rates in the country, we're going to need to find ways to uh, boost the savings rate. And it's a whole range of issues, as you people know far better than I, ranging from the cultural to the institutional to tax. Uh, But something needs to be done, because we cannot continue to run with a national savings rate of around 15% and have any hope of achieving growth rates on the order of 4 to 5% that are needed to address our unemployment problem, which ultimately is a poverty issue and which ultimately is a social sustainability issue. So addressing the savings challenge, I think, is, is one of the very important keys to making sure that the country is on a firmer footing looking forward. Um, happy to take questions, I think there 's a roving mic. stunned silence, deep depression it 's always the case that with a larger room, people are much less willing to ask a question but um, there there we go. One brave fellow
0: Thank you. I think you did cover it, but quite quickly. Could you explain why um, fixed investment is so much higher than our um, savings rates and um, whether that's sustainable.
1: Yeah, so it's it's not sustainable over a long run, but the gap between our savings rate and the fixed investment rate is the import of capital through a current account deficit. So your your investment rate in a country is your savings rate plus your current account deficit, very roughly. There's lots of little bits and pieces at at the margins.
2: Thank you. Um, So if the ANC loses the three major um, cities, metros that they still have, and I mean, given that um, Western Cape is already with with the DA, what what does that imply for the pace of loss of of a majority for? regional elections and national elections. I mean, because most people say it's two elections on still before the ANC can actually lose a national election. Um, and I must say, I saw, I was surprised to see those numbers in the Sunday Times yesterday because mm. I really wouldn't have expected, you know, the, that the forecast is already for a, for a majority for the, for the DA in Gauteng and Shawnee. But it sort of gives you a sense that maybe the ANC really need to start looking at the risk at the next election then.
1: Look, I think that this is um, the concern that must be very real in the party. If these results manifest like this, what does it spell, not for the results at a national level in the next elections, but what does it spell for Gauteng in particular? Because two of the three metros there were obviously Gauteng, and of course there's Ikuleni as well, which is also a big metro, also based in Gauteng. There have been some other polls which don't present this picture In quite the same way, there was one by the Electoral Institute of South Africa which was published um, very recently which shows uh, the ANC garnering 52% at a national level and the DA 17% at a national level, so it would still give the ANC a majority, (coughs) albeit a much reduced one, at a national level. You know, the the issue, I think, is what does the ANC decide to do with the president, because it's the president who is particularly unpopular in the urban areas. Uh, Ipsos, who do these polls for Nelson Mandela Bay, Tswane and Joburg, also ask questions about various political leaders. And you can see that he is the political leader who is least trusted by people with the exception actually of Julius Malema, which is another interesting thing that's coming out of these poll results actually. EFF continues to poll surprisingly low, on the order of eight to 13%. I would have thought prior to these polls coming out that they, the strength of their brand and their visibility in the press and the, the, the punchy, potent um, nature of their message meant that they would be likely to get much better, 20, 25%. But still, they seem sort of stuck around the 10% level. Um, The consequences of it and how the ANC interpret the results I think depend very much on exactly where the votes fall. Uh, If you look at the campaigning right now, they seem to be taking particular aim at the DA, which makes sense given that the poll results show that the DA is their most significant competitor. But if the results on the day come out different and EFF has done particularly well and the DA has not done especially well on the day or one or two days after. If if the results come out differently from the polls, the ANC may draw a different conclusion about how it should um, respond. And we don't really know yet. Um, It's going to be interesting. Uh, As I say, I I don't believe that the ANC is given any indication that it would uh, create a formula for President Zuma to step down. We've had very little sign of that uh, in recent months, given Nkandla, given the Gupta influence peddling investigation by Gwedi Mantashi, other um, aspects of the whole long-running saga. Which to me, suggest that our president is here until 2017. But I think a poor election result will increase the factional biting, factional infighting, um, for succession, and I think it's going to actually get kind of ugly. A lot is at stake here, and it's a, in some ways it's an existential battle for control of the party and for control of the country.
0: You know, yes, I have a question. Um, you talk about household savings being quite low at fifteen percent. Um, at what level would household savings need to be in order to? Sort of get the right level of growth uh, in the economy. How does how would that then compare to sort of places like the US, the UK, in terms of in terms of savings and and um, are the tax dispensations that have been uh, promulgated adequate to encourage those household savings? You know, the the recent sort of amendments to the Income Tax Act allow. Uh, tax deductibility up to a level of twenty-seven and a half percent, up to a maximum of I think three hundred and fifty thousand rand per year. Um, is that an adequate level of uh, tax incentive to basically encourage those savings? And what more needs to be done to basically get it to the right level? Okay. Um, so it's, the household savings rate is actually negative. Um, it's the chart on the upper
1: left-hand side. There, households have been dissaving since two thousand and six. But it's our national savings rate, so the sum of corporate savings household savings and government savings, or dis-saving in the case, um, give us a national savings rate of about 15% of GDP. And that's really not that much. It's about enough to finance some uh, replacement of depreciated capital, and then we don't have an awful lot left over for new, um, for new capital. Uh, the Tax is only one part, I think. Savings, in some ways, is cultural. And maybe one of the things that we are not doing a very good job of here in South Africa is creating a savings culture. But it also is related to the macro environment. When you have such tremendous income inequality, the bulk of the people don't actually have room to save Very much on a voluntary basis and as you look to redistribute income from the wealthy to the poor they have a higher marginal propensity to consume so that 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 goal that you have of trying to get a more even income balance initially is um, going to be um, inimical to a higher savings rate because the poor will spend what they have because it's the the urgency of it is today Um, I think Taxes—it's not my area of expertise. I can't really opine on whether it's going to be sufficient on its own. I don't think you can fix this through the tax system on its own. I also think it requires a bit of a, a cultural um, education, which can encompass things like explaining to people the benefits of the taxes. It can require or can include institutional change. Part of my thinking about this, I went and I looked at Postbank. And it's really striking. You know, post-bank have branches everywhere, and yet the deposits in post-bank hardly change at all. We're sitting at four billion rand in post-bank. I'm not sure why we're not using Postbank more effectively to mobilize the savings um, of the poor. The cultural education should also deal with something which is very evident in South Africa, which is that it's a very um, consumer materialist Culture, it's an aspirational culture. People like to flash the new clothes, like to flash the expensive vehicles, and you see it ranging from rich to poor. It, that's not a culture in general that encourages savings. So I think it goes broader really than just the tax system, but you need a, a kind of a holistic approach to it that I think we're not properly thinking about. Maybe a show of hands, it wasn't a question that I asked, but I'm actually quite curious to know. So on this key question of, Mr. Trump uh, polling <coughs> neck and neck with Ms. Clinton. Um, show of hands, who thinks that we're going to have the Donald as the next leader of the free world? I think that would be probably about one out of six. There's a, there's a cluster of Trumpians at the back there. <laughs> Maybe a few comments just on Donald. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton is a vote for the status quo. Whether you like her or you don't like her, at least you kind of know what you're going to get with her. And I, 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 if anybody wants a giggle, um, go and Google P.J. O'Rourke, Hillary Clinton. So P.J. O'Rourke is a very noted conservative political commentator in the States. He's super conservative. Uh, and he wrote an article, um, Why I Am Endorsing Hillary Clinton for President of the United States. And the article started off... Reluctantly, I am endorsing Hillary Clinton for President of the United States because for all of her pomp and her empty promises and her lies, she is only the second worst thing that could ever happen to America. (laughs) And then it ends up with, I should be clear, um, Hillary Clinton is absolutely wrong about everything, but at least she is wrong within normal parameters. Look, I think this is something that people should be aware of. The guy is a loose cannon. He's polling even with Hillary Clinton. As Brexit has shown, never underestimate, or as in Winston Churchill's dictum, the best argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with your average voter. We shouldn't underestimate the possibility that Donald gets elected, and I think that that is a very frightening prospect. because we don't know what he's going to do. I mean his stated policies range from the lunatic to um, the seriously frightening. I was reading the other day that he had encouraged um, the Russians to actually go and see if they could try and hack some more of the emails um, on Hillary Clinton. So he's basically (coughs) entreating a foreign power to commit cyber espionage. The guy's a loose cannon and I I think he would be very dangerous Um, were he to be elected. That's a personal view by the way, not a Barclays view. I'm not sure that as a House we have a strong view or at least not an expressed one on that, but that's my own personal view. Um, And yet he's polling neck and neck with Hillary Clinton, so we have a big event risk out there that we're going to have to deal with the consequences of should it materialize. I hope that the the, the cluster view in the back there, I really hope you're wrong, but um, any other questions? How are we doing for time, Kosta? Doing well. Okay. Any more questions, guys? We have another one there.
2: Thanks. So, putting Brexit and a possible Trump win together, mm. right? So, I mean, the day Brexit happened, I told people in the office it's the end of Western civilization. Brexit and Trump together will be the end of, of Western civilization because Trump has said he's not going to support NATO, he's not going to honor the NATO treaties. You've got Putin baying at the door of Eastern Europe. I mean, what do you see Europe looking like in four years' time? You made a comment at the start about six months ago, people were saying South Africa's not a good place to live. In four years' time, if Trump has actually won, South Africa might be a very attractive place for people in Europe. Um, and what are, the, what are the implications for sort of all of these REITs that are buying Eastern European properties and for investors from that perspective?
1: It's really hard to have any kind of concrete view on what the implications, the specific implications are, other than to say it's going to look bad, um, it's not very insightful, but it's... <laughs> I think it's, it's not just Trump and um, Brexit, it's also what could happen in Europe itself. I mean, we had the, the, the question on will another country try and leave the EU, and with everything that's going on in Europe, that's a, it's a serious uh, political challenge they have on their hands there. That's really going to play into the hands of the isolationists, the anti-internationalists, those who want to leave the EU. We just need a few more, just a few more terrorist attacks in uh, France. And as we've seen, you don't need advanced weapons to carry one out, and you don't actually need to be part of an organisation. You can just be a little bit mentally disturbed and inspired somehow by ISIS and you can get a truck and cause a terrible thing. That will really play into the hands of um, the National Front. Um, South Africa does start to look. It gives perspective on South Africa. I've got a couple of friends who are deeply Afro-pessimists, so much so that it annoys the, the heck out of me and I have to tell them sometimes, look, I know what your view is but would you please actually just shut up because I am so sick of listening to you and it's really, it's, it's, it's unpleasant and it's unnecessary to be that negative. Anyway, I mentioned it only because a couple of them have said to me totally spontaneously out of the blue, wow, everything that's going on really makes, gives you a perspective that maybe South Africa isn't such a bad place uh, to be and maybe our future is not um, r- that relatively gloomy. Maybe I think we're sort of. It certainly makes us feel, in some ways, that you know other places have political problems as well. Uh, I think we've got some big political challenges that we need to deal with. We have a ticking time bomb in on our hands. It's on our doorsteps. Every time you kind of drive past a township, you can see it. Um, every time somebody comes up to you in the street to ask you for money, you can see it. It's a ticking time bomb and. I I don't really hold with the view that the status quo can hold indefinitely. We need to start doing a better job in terms of getting growth, job creation, poverty alleviation going and we're not going to do it with the current policy mix. We need a radical um, change of direction because we can't rely on the global economy to lift us up. There's so much um, turmoil going on in the global economy. It has a negative impact on us. Therefore we've only got ourselves to rely on and we need to start doing a better job Um, And yet, unfortunately, in many cases, we seem to um, be abdicating responsibility for taking the hard decisions on economic policies. It was something that was really brought out by the IMF Deputy Director David Lipton when he was here, and it's something that the rating agencies are focused on as well. What does South Africa need to do to get growth going? I can list ten policies that I think should be implemented tomorrow that wouldn't solve our growth issue overnight, but they would be a step in the right direction, but for political reasons, um, we're not tackling them and yes, South Africa looks good when you see all of these abhorrent terrorist attacks um everywhere, but you know let 's not forget the the poverty that's on our doorstep and the fact that that is potentially a time bomb as well. Any other questions? Nope.
0: There's one. Thank you. Are there any policies or practices that the government could put into place to reduce the likelihood of a credit downgrade towards the end of the year? Uh, Besides, for example, a conviction
1: to root out corruption? Good question. Um, So rating agencies want to see signs that we can move forward on contentious um policies they don't need to see everything done but they want enough evidence that we are going to do it so i think if post elections we had a new board for saa just gordon being able to implement the changes he wants at this state-owned enterprise which is a big fiscal risk So a new board, such that we put that on a sounder footing, and if we had, say, the introduction of secret strike balloting, which is something that NEDLAC has been discussing for years now, it's kind of a no-brainer. I'm not sure why it's still so contentious to introduce secret strike balloting in South Africa. But those two on their own, plus some fiscal uh, adjustments in the MTBPS might be enough to stay the rating agency's hand for a little bit longer. With the expectation that there are more structural reforms to come in 2017, I sometimes get asked what are the two things that I think that South Africa, or what would I do if I were running economic policy in South Africa, uh, that the rating agencies would really want to see as well. One of them is a labour market reform, not secret strike balloting, but the extension of centrally bargained wage agreements to non-parties. It's very strange part of our centralized bargaining arrangements. Centralized bargaining is common around the world, but the idea that you can have this insider-insider deal with organized labor, agreeing with big businesses, a wage rate that then applies to small firms who weren't party to the discussions, this is really unusual and it's really inimical to uh, small business development and growth and employment at small businesses. Small businesses, because they tend to be less capitalized, need lower wage rates than large businesses. So this is a key thing, I think, that needs to go, but it's not even up for discussion. Too much opposition from organized labor. Another thing that I've long said I thought we should do, we do a terrible job of promoting our exports into neighboring Africa. Um, However, just recently I saw that um, DTI had established a a one-stop shop for export promotion Uh, and investment promotion into neighboring Africa, and I think it's great. It it needs to happen. We need to sort out some of the border logistics there, because of course it's all very well to have the regime in place, but if it takes five days to get your goods across the border and you have to pay bribes to corrupt border guards, uh, then it's a problem. But those would be a couple of things that I think would make the rating agencies really quite happy were they to see them. Um, Rating agencies also want to see more teeth for our competition policy. the big uh, business in South Africa tends sometimes to be not terribly competitive, and there's probably a case for stronger teeth for the competition authorities in that regard. Um, if you want a full list, the IMF's Article 4 paper um, lays them out. And then David Lipton, you just Google him, and in South Africa, he was incredibly blunt uh, about what needs to happen here. One more question, I'm told by. Um, and then I'm going to have to hand over. no nope. Everybody, thank you very much for your time and for your responses.
0: Having heard Peter a number of times before, I have to tell you that this is probably the most positive presentation I've ever seen him give. <laughs> Peter, on behalf of the Retirement Matters of the Actuarial Society, I'd very much like to thank you for your insights and the effort that you made in coming and talking to us today. Um, it certainly sets the scene for the presentations that are to follow and um, something small from the Pensions Committee. Thanks very much.